Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. In this episode, I speak with David Trailer, the founder and senior managing director of Golden Eagle Partners. He's an investment banker whose position is firm directly on the growing cannabis industry. I enjoyed this interview because we talk about the wild west of cannabis. David shares some funny stories, but we also speak about a number of changing regulations and the indicators of how the states are starting to change their perspectives. Given his position, he has a front row seat to a lot of the rapid changes that are happening. Now, it's funny to think that three or four years is a long time in the world of cannabis. But in that time, deal terms have changed, interest rates are changing, and ultimately, we're seeing issuers gaining greater leverage when they're raising capital. Now, what became even more apparent in our conversation is that as a CEO, there's a lot of value to be harnessed in the banker you choose. To give you an example, David's background is originally in biosciences, as well as working in executive roles with companies in the past. Why is this important? Because he's been in the trenches of building companies, and he also has a deep understanding of both the space and the operating of a business. Instead of pushing a number of mediocre deals, he's also able to focus on the specific niches and an ability to establish a deeper level of confidence with those who are writing the checks. It's great to have a banker's perspective on the show. Enjoy this episode. On the line, I have David Trailer of Golden Eagle Partners. He has started at a very early stage or uh, well, early in the industry of cannabis, an early stage investment bank. So it's exciting to have you on. David, how are you? I'm doing well on a Friday. Thanks for having me, Corey. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, I'd really like to start off with your background and uh, and who Golden Eagle is and the work you're doing there. I think it's really interesting your movement into building an investment bank and in, in very specifically focused on the cannabis space. Well, yeah, thanks. So Golden Eagle Partners, yeah, we're an investment and banking advisory firm uh, based in Denver. And essentially, really, the involvement in the industry was predicated on my initial career in biotechnology. So I think uh, it's pretty lucky to start off with two science degrees, biochemistry and molecular biology at the University of Colorado. And from that point, I jumped into doing bioprocessing for recombinant proteins for two companies. Synergen was one and Somagen was the other. And those first four years of operational experience, luckily doing bioprocessing, I was able to be named an inventor on two patents at Somatogen. And then from that point, jumped into other operational roles for the next 10 or 11 years. So I have 15 years of operational experience. And that that stint in bioprocessing, Corey, really led me. That was one of the reasons to jump into cannabis, because as you know, that's really what, whether it's marijuana or hemp, it's really bioprocessing, right? So after 15 years of 
operational experience in biotech. I ended up getting into an investment banking role in San Francisco in 2005, and then 2009 moved back to Colorado where I was born and raised. And I was leading the life science group for a group called Headwaters and did that for a few years. And then in 2012, I founded Golden Eagle Partners to give myself a little more autonomy. And the whole impetus to do that was to do biotech, but maybe some other industries. And then as you may remember, November of 2012 is when Colorado and Washington voters okayed the recreational use of marijuana. And that was kind of the beginning of the advent of the modern cannabis age. And so late 2012, early 2013, I started advising companies. And one of those was Cerna. Cerna was one of the first public companies in the space. They went public via reverse merger here in the U.S. in early 2014, right when things went legal. That was the January 1st, 2014 is when the first recreational sale started in Colorado, right? Uh, so jumped in with Cerna and I was their chief business officer. And through that stint of about a year working at Cerna, they were making climate control systems for indoor grow operations. They're still an ongoing concern to this day. But Corey, I really learned from that experience that there's a real need in the industry to match really good capital with really good operators or help to do really good strategic transactions between companies. And it's not so easy. So left Cerna in late 2015, and we've been uh, doing deals ever since. That's very interesting. It's something that in our previous uh, discussions, what I what I clued in on was the operational experience you've had from the biotech side, uh, those 15 years, uh, and as well as some investment banking experience and now explicitly focusing on uh, the investment banking side. What, what should operators know? What should CEOs know about your role? Well, that's a good question. Uh, what we try to do when we work with companies is be more than just a arm's length investment banking firm or investment bankers. Having worked in the C-suite in some companies and, and certainly in operational roles, both in companies in Boulder and Silicon Valley, we really understand, you know, the, the day-to-day operations, but also, uh, for example, one of the stints I, I worked in a company called Affymetrics, which was a leading genomics company in the late 90s, right? And that was, I think, very similar to what we see in cannabis today. Back in the late 90s with genomics, there was just such a opportunity with the new technologies and the computing power that was coming online. That it was just really hard to determine what strategies to do to take market share because there was just such a white space, if you will, of opportunity for genomics companies. And I think that's very similar to what you're seeing in cannabis, that there's just so much opportunity, whether it's marijuana, whether it's hemp, whether it's U.S., Canada, North America, international, right? And having been through that in the late 90s, uh, we understand the fact, you know, there's, there's really hard ways to understand how to compete effectively as a management team. It's really hard to determine, you know, what areas you want to emphasize and focus on. And as a result of that, I think we're, we're much more value-add than your your typical investment banker. For example, one of our key aspects on diligence on the groups or companies we like to work with, whether it's financing or strategic advisory, is focus. And so I learned this very well in the genomics uh, industry back in the 90s, that if you don't have a focus in 
pick certain areas that you want to do and do them well, you're going to end up spreading yourself too thin. And as a result, that lack of focus is going to result in you doing a lot of things on, uh, you know, mediocre or not so well, as opposed to picking one or two things to do really well and do them well enough where you succeed and, and take market share. And I think there's probably that's endemic in cannabis that there's a lot of these companies that don't have that focus. And as a result, they're, I don't think, going to succeed in the end. Hey, you know, that's one of the most frustrating things I've seen with companies I've, I've worked with is that spreading across too many different areas. And it's just, it's becoming a red flag for me. So I hear what you're saying there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, and it's, and it's hard to do, right? I mean, it's hard to have the discipline if you're in a company to really say, okay, we're going to not pursue that and we're going to lose that opportunity. It's, but it's, you know, it's a matter of discipline and it's not easy. Right? Yeah. I think that's a very good point. It's, um, it's, it's, it's making a bet and, uh, and not diversifying and just going all in on one act, one area. So yes, it is hard. It is hard. What I want to take from that is, the value add of what you you do is is I mean that's very interesting as opposed to somebody just saying okay yeah I can I can take you out and take you out walk you down the street and we'll we'll see if we can get some interest and some checks for you when you have a company approach you and they need some advisory work or they need to to raise money what questions do you want them asking you yeah no that's a great that's a great question for example I was just at a conference. And the question, you know, I was on a panel and the question was asked to the panel, you know, what do you do as far as diligence on companies when you're looking to, or investors, what, what diligence should investors do on, on companies? And I kind of flipped it around and said, well, you ought to consider it's a two-way street. And you should consider the fact that com- as being in a company, you should also diligence your investors. And it should go both ways. And I believe that's the same way with you know, looking for clients is that we obviously need to kick the tires and make sure that they're, you know, real, because frankly speaking, our perspective is 90% of the operators out there in the cannabis sector, whether it's marijuana or hemp, uh, are not probably doing things correctly, or frankly, don't know that they're doing things correctly, because it's just such a new industry, right? The Wild Um, West. But... The Wild West, yeah. But so we're, we're fine with them also kicking the tires on, on ourselves and what we've done and how we do things. Uh, because we think that what we want to do, and we just had a conversation with a potential client earlier this morning, well, we want to make sure that there is a fit, uh, not only with what they need and what we can provide, but also essentially culturally, that there's a fit with how we operate and what we do and how they operate and what we do. And we believe that, that fit is critical to the success of what we end up doing, whether it's strategic advisory or financing for that client, right? So how how far can that diligence go? Like what kind of questions would you want asked? Uh, well, you know, first, you know, I think just to, to relate it to companies or people out there listening as far as if they want to hire an investment banker, definitely ask as far as, you know, what they've done in the past, uh, how they see their process, their transactions, what transactions have they done? Uh, what what is the scope of the work? What do they bring to the table? Why do they think they'll be successful? And you know, for example, uh, I think the scope is is critical. Like for example, most investment bankers, 
will say, you know, give us your, your deck. We know a number of people. We have a really good Rolodex and we can send it out. We're unique in the fact, we believe we're unique anyway, in the fact of having the operational experience and having been in the industry since really the beginning of, of this in 2013, that we are able to really add value in what we call enhancing the materials of our clients, right? And I think that's important because by diving into our, and we had a call actually earlier this morning too with a current client, one actually based out of Winnipeg, where we're essentially helping them put their deck together. And by doing that, we believe we understand the story almost as well as a senior management team. And if that's the, that's the case and what we do, then that allows us to much more effectively sell our clients, right? Because we under the, understand the story that much better. I get you. Okay, thanks for that. Something sure. from from the experience you've had there, when you're doing these deals, there's always tense, tense uh, moments. There's tense negotiations. There can be strokes of luck. There can be just unbelievable deals that have happened. In your experience in finance and, and operating, you know what stories do you have? <laughs> yeah, well, that's uh, that's a good. One. We haven't, you know, how much time do we have? <laughs> no, certainly. Well, there's there's a number of stories. I mean, certainly we started off in biotech, and and that was always interesting, frankly, because that was a, a a whole different ball of wax, if you will, right? Because we would end up negotiating with MIT or Harvard or you know, we did, if you look at my deal sheet, we've, I've done deals with AstraZeneca, Pfizer, uh, et cetera. Those were pretty big, pretty big deals. And those were, you know, you could predict where those are going to go, right? And you could predict the people on the other side of the table in cannabis. It's, it's kind of a whole different story. And it was interesting. One of the stories I thought was interesting, and, it's, and it kind of explains the migration and how we were seeing the evolution of this industry but when I first started, you know, at Cerna, which was late, uh, which was 2014, which was a long time ago, right? In cannabis, uh, the dawning of cannabis, or at least modern cannabis industry. And it was interesting because we were an OTC company and we were also in cannabis. And it, and it was almost apparent being an OTC company, we were a lightning rod for, for charlatans, frankly, right? Mm-hmm. And we would have get a lot of converse calls or inbound saying, hey, we have money you know, we can help you out. And a number of times we would have conversations with people and they say, well, we have money and here are the terms. And then they'd send over a term sheet. And it was not at all what they said that they were going to provide. Right. And they assumed that I was working in cannabis. I wasn't very smart, which was kind of funny. That's really happened quite a bit back then. And so we would essentially, and then I tell them, well, this is not what you said you we're going to provide on the phone. And they said, Oh, well, that's our template redline and send it back to us. And I frankly be nice about it and say, go pound sand. I'm not going to redline your document. and I'm not an idiot. So if you want to do deals with us, this is how it is. And we would negotiate hard enough that we would get, get really, uh, really good deals. And though, why I want to bring that up is that's definitely evolved over time. And then there's definitely investors out there have done a number of deals. There are certainly more astute. The terms, uh, are evolving over time. You know, interest rates are coming down on debt deals and some of the other levers to pull on equity deals aren't maybe as onerous as they used to be. Uh, less toxic convertible deals are getting done for public companies here. So um, that's that's one story indicative of, you know, where things were and, and where they've come from. It has the, the levers of power changed? Uh, is it... 
do deals have more uh, more say than they than they did previously when negotiating capital, or or what what's that balance of power now between uh, the capital and the and the issuers? Yeah, that's a, a great question. Yeah, that's that it's definitely changed. I mean, as you know, the best thing we can do for our clients is provide them as many options as possible, whether it's uh, you know financing or an acquisition or what or even a co-development deal. Right, the more options they have, the more leverage they may have in those negotiations. And way back when in 2014, for example, when we were at Cerna, we were a public company, and you could bring in money and have you know an exit pretty readily available down the line. You know, especially if you have 144 stock here in the U.S., where there's typically a six-month restriction, right, on liquidity. So it was amazing back then. We we had a hard time raising three million dollars with uh, at Cerna, and this day and age, that's completely changed, right? So there's there's more capital sources. Uh, we've gone overseas to Dubai and other places. Those are starting to come online, right? So there's there's definitely more capital. Uh, with that being said, though, a lot of these new capital sources uh, have never done deals in cannabis, so they're they're not, you know, the the structures that are out there for equity or debt tend to be a little more fluid. But I, it definitely is has changed the environment. For example, uh, in this uh, this panel I was referring to earlier when we were talking about due diligence being a two-way street, Corey, between, you know, the investor and the company, you know, back in 2014, there's no way that the companies had the leverage to do due diligence on an investor, right? It was pretty much, here's the here's the terms, take it or leave it, right? Because right, there weren't right. many options. So that's one of the things why the the environment really has changed because the, now there are more options and the companies that really have some interesting stories do have a little more leverage to be maybe a little more picky and choosy between investors they go with and, and really kind of uh, pick the, the terms a little more. They have a little more leverage certainly than they used to. What I want to do is, is move in and, and talk more broadly about the industry and what you're seeing. But before I do that, um, from uh, or as I understand, you're a former lacrosse player. So, you know, maybe you have some Canadian roots, I don't know, but that also ties into Athletes for Care, which is an interesting organization uh, that I'd like to hear about. Yeah, no, thanks. Yeah, Corey. So actually, I'm still playing lacrosse. Uh, my wife's not too keen about it, but it, it does keep me, uh, keep my, uh, you know, cardiovascular system uh, somewhat in check and uh, heart You're disease competitor, man. at that's bay, a, that's a hard if you will. Well, uh, yeah, well, it's, uh, you know, you get it in your blood, but, uh, I was lucky enough, yeah, to, to play a number of years ago. I'm from Colorado originally and got it going and I played at the University of Colorado. And then lucky enough, in the late eighties, I was asked to play professionally for the Colorado franchise for the ALL. Uh, and so did that, uh, but certainly continued to play and, about three years ago, I was introduced to Ryan Kingsbury, who was previously at Charlotte's Web, and got to know Jake Plummer, who was a former quarterback of the Denver Broncos. And Ryan put together a great group called Athletes for Care. And the the scope, I believe, has uh, morphed over time. But really, the goal of the group is to have ex-pro athletes espouse the benefits of, of cannabis, whether that's marijuana, CBD, or other preparations of of cannabis right for example one of the things they're doing now is working to reach out to wada the you know the anti-doping agency 
to see if there's ways to kind of change some of the regulations or rules around, you know, levels of CBD or marijuana, et cetera, or THC that, that get tested. So they're essentially trying to really espouse the benefits. And it's really amazing when you get on the phone and listen to some of these ex-pro athletes, whether that are hockey or football, MMA. We have a women's rugby player on the team. And it's great to hear these people essentially get on the phone and indicate that they're now functional again after taking such a beating uh, in their pro sports. And it's all having to do with various preparations of cannabis. It's it's fascinating um, when you talk about CBD. And it seems to have been the the unsung hero of, of the world of cannabis. And, and, you know, it really, I think it leads into the world of uh, more of the biotech or the pharmaceutical side, which I'd like to discuss with you with that though. It's, you know, we, we look at the industry and as, as we may mention earlier, it, it is the wild West, but how is it formalizing and um, where are you seeing it going? Uh, yeah. It's, uh, it's, yeah. The wild West is kind of, a uh, bit crazy. And I think you also, you know, we were thinking about talking about some regulations in this conversation and maybe to pull all that together. It's it's interesting here down the U.S. And, and you probably seen it certainly up in Canada. I know in Canada that you tend to regulate beer across, you know, specifically for each province. And so, you know, I'd imagine integrating some of the legalization of recreational from, uh, you know, from last year in Canada, right, probably didn't go as seamlessly as people wanted it to be, to go. Not at all. And for, yeah, right. And for an interesting story, one of my clients, uh, they're a hemp company. They they process hemp. And as you know, the farm bill passed and was signed in December uh, down here in the U.S. That essentially put you know a number uh, opened up a number of avenues for hemp. Uh, one of the one of the rules promulgated out of that is that states were not supposed to interdict in hemp shipments and hemp across the U.S. And so we have a client here in Colorado, and they ordered a hemp shipment, a shipment of hemp biomass from Kentucky, and it was coming through Oklahoma. And it turns out the truck drivers ran a stoplight and were pulled over, and the law enforcement people thought it was the largest drug bust in Oklahoma history, and this has actually been a pretty big news item down here in the States. You can Google it if you want. But the, the main point being, was, and it, it finally you know, it took about a month or two months to get the truck drivers out of jail, and actually it turns out the hemp shipment is still in Oklahoma, and I believe it's still confiscated. And it's interesting, and why we bring that up is that even if you do get regulations rolled back, whether it's hemp, whether it's marijuana, it's not going to be a seamless transition. There's still going to be some, some interesting, you know, offshoots from rolling back those regs and not everybody's probably going to get the memo, if you will. Well, that, that poor bugger being, uh, you know, all he was doing was driving truck. Yeah. Well, and he, they were trying to put him away for like multiple years. So getting back to your original assertion, yeah, it is in some respects still like the wild west. And that's one reason why, you know, cannabis and specifically marijuana is is a very unique industry. I mean, we come across it all the time with people say, oh, well, it's just like any industry. And if you're talking marijuana here in the U.S., it's not. Uh, for example, in Colorado, uh, you know, if there's a surplus, 
you end up getting some really weird supply and demand economics uh, here in the U.S. Because, for example, Colorado, it's been one of the first states, right? And when there's a surplus, uh, they essentially, what they ended up doing is uh, changing the regulations and they allowed, they used to require that dispensaries had to be fully integrated with cultivation operations. And they decoupled those a number of years ago. And when they did that, a number of cultivation operations came online. And guess what? We ended up having a surplus. Well, guess, guess what happened to the price, right? Um, we talked to an Oregon operate, operator yesterday. And what we've heard recently, and I don't know if it's true or not, but you know, it sounds like Oregon has anywhere from three to six years of surplus of flour right now in Oregon because they have so many licensees and people are just continuing to grow. And so, you know, again, getting back to your assertion on the Wild West, it's it, it's crazy, right? It's mm. unique. So when you look at the states, uh, I mean, let's, you could quickly contrast Oklahoma with, let's say, California or Colorado. What other states are, are moving ahead uh, quickly or who are, who are blazing trails? Excuse the Well, pun. yeah, I think, well, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, there's a lot of puns in the cannabis industry when you when you talk about cannabis. Well, I think one of the things that's interesting about the U.S. is what you've seen in the last, you know, 12 to 18 months. So getting back to Oklahoma, Oklahoma recently approved medical use of marijuana, right? And so did, so did Utah. And so if you look up one of the proxies that we believe is a proxy for conservative values, one of those is church attendance. So if you look at church attendance per capita in the U.S. on a state-by-state basis, it turns out that Utah ranks number one with the highest rate of church attendance per capita, and Oklahoma is number seven. And to me, that's interesting that you have those two states that are you know, quite religious, at least by church attendance, and they've also gone with approved medical marijuana. So I think that those are two case in points. Uh, what, how things are changing and how they're changing quickly here uh, in the U.S. I think is most people will agree that the horse is really out of the barn and it's really a matter of time until, you know, national legalization happens. Right? Okay. And would you, would you hazard a guess on, on a timeline for national legalization? <laughs> I, I think anybody in the industry that's been in as long as we have or I have is, would rather not try to <laughs> predict uh, I mean, for example, the sector we see is just accelerating. There's no way. Uh, and I talked to Troy Dayton uh, two weeks ago when we were at this conference, and he's certainly one of the leading people in the industry. He got in it early. He's been doing ArcView forever. He's one of the more well-respected names in the industry. And he also just can't believe how quickly things are moving. I mean, we went to this conference last year in LA, the IC3 event that we spoke at this year, and we spoke at it last year. And last year, we couldn't believe in March how quickly the industry was accelerating with, you know, new people coming online. And then we went to it this year, and then now the new wrinkle is hemp, right? CBD, and how quickly that's accelerating. So to try to predict where, you know, 280E, the IRS tax code might be rolled back here, or, you know, how quickly Canada is going to you know, export and roll their supplies into new countries and how quickly it's going to transition internationally. I mean, it's just, I'd rather not, you know, try to fathom a guess because if I do, most likely it's going to be wrong. 
right? I gotcha. But it, it sounds, what I'm taking away from, from your points here is that it's moving fast. It's moving very fast. Yeah. I mean, you know, and it's hard to break to do is, is, you know, you have the Republicans down here who have always been pro-business and, you know, Mitch McConnell is from Kentucky and supposedly he's, you know, behind hemp because Kentucky is one of the major hemp states. Uh, and so you have a, a lot of these also personalities, for example, is, is Trump going to be pro-business or is he going to be kind of anti-drug? Uh, Jeff Sessions used to be, you know, uh, in his cabinet no longer. And he was a really, uh, an opponent yep. to legalization. Uh, so then you have not only that, but then you have, you know, the IRS tat 280E regulations and that really comes down from the IRS. And then you have the scheduling one, schedule one of the drug down here. And that kind of routes through the DEA and then the FDA and clinical trials. So it's an amalgamation, frankly, of a mess. Uh, but you know, when, you know, some may get rolled back sooner than others and some will have bigger effects, right. Than others do, whether it's, you know, banking or 280E or what have you. Right? Okay. Now, I mean, there's so much we could unpack here and, and perhaps this is more of a general question. Uh, with, what's your thesis on the industry now? Yeah. As far as how we like to, uh, operate and how we kind of dictate our strategy is that kind of yeah maybe a little more color to that where where do you where are you looking to set your sights i mean we've got recreational we've got hemp we've got cbd and going into the yeah um you know where where do you see uh um the most opportunity or what do you want to focus on yeah that's a great question i mean we've been recently thinking if i were to just jump into what i'm doing now like right now where we're at with cannabis, I would almost think that, uh, Corey, that I would have to specialize between marijuana and hemp. Uh, and, you know, that's, that's where it's gotten to the point where, you know, hemp is those two, the two industries really are bifurcating pretty quickly. And they're very different about, you know, how the operations go. You know, the regulations are completely different. The barriers to entry are completely different. But that being said, you know, that's not the case. We've been in it for a while. And I think really what dictates our strategy and how we want to work, <clears throat> excuse me, how we want to work in the industry and and really hopefully survive into the future, because right now a lot of the big investment banks are still on the outside looking in due to federal regulations. And so, you know, we want to make sure that we're trying to set our foundation for the future to where we can you know, either continue to do what we're doing or migrate or evolve into a, a different part of the industry or do, a, you know, a different focus or skill set. And what really drives us for what we're trying to do is really two things. One is knowledge and the other is relationships. And we believe that those two things are unassailable, right? So if we continue to operate, we've been in the industry six years, which is a long time. And then you add my 15 years of operational experience in biotech, this industry, whether it's hemp or marijuana, is continuing to go more towards biotech, right? You're having operations come on with good manufacturing practice, GMP. You're having more companies come on with, you know, yeast expression systems where you're not allowed requiring, a, you know, cannabis sativa to grow the cannabinoids, right? And so that, that knowledge and expertise is one thing we want to continue to build on. The other is, if you go to our website, is you know one of the things we'd like to espouse is global relationships. 
And we think, again, that's something that if we continue to gain more outreach to investment groups uh, all over the world, that's also those relationships are something that you can't tear down, right? They're unassailable too. For example, we went to, spoke at a conference in Dubai last March. Uh, went to Toronto for a family office event uh, last late last year, uh, October, I believe. Uh, went to a family office conference, spoke on a panel in Grand Cayman last month in April. Uh, and then certainly, obviously, in LA, we've gone to speak at events in, in the Hamptons and then also sponsored event, uh, Canatech in Israel uh, a couple months ago. And so the idea is that what's driving our strategy, again, is looking at building and continuing to build our knowledge and expertise in the industry and certainly more and more relationships. Okay. And can you, can you just quickly maybe drive in on how you see the differentiation between marijuana, which to me is, is I break it down kind of on the THC and CBD sides and those finding their ways into uh, you know, different forms of use and then hemp and what you're seeing in, in, yeah. on the two sides there. Yeah, no, that's a good question. Well, the one thing to start off with, I think is so interesting about this industry is the nomenclature a lot of times gets mixed up. And I'm not saying that I have, you know, the correct way of going about it, but we're, we like to, when we do things, for example, I finally looked up the other day, whether it's cannabinoids or cannabinoids, and it turns out both pronunciations I believe are accepted. Uh, okay. Yeah, and, I'm on the same right? page there. I was kind of going, right. I mean, yeah. that's one of the things, and yeah. I, I finally because I used to say uh, cannabinoids uh, or uh, cannabinoids. I, that was where originally, and I think it's easier to say. But then, it, you know, if you think about cannabis, it's, that's probably the pronunciation. But then you get into the fact of you know cannabis, hemp, etc. And so I certainly run into people that call marijuana cannabis. And my thought is, if you really look at a cannabis sativa. Cannabis is the genus, right? Sativa is the species coming from a biotech background, right? So our thought is that cannabis should encompass both hemp and marijuana because when you really look at it, if you're producing a THC varietal or cultivar that's going to result in a marijuana product, that's cannabis sativa. And if you're going to be you know, generating or growing a number of cultivars of hemp or cannabis sativa as far as the main um, origin right of the plant so with that being said uh you know we believe so marijuana is really the thc side hemp's the the non-thc side and here in the u.s right the it's pretty much of an ambiguous threshold of 0.3 percent thc or less is really defines hemp uh, I think the one thing that's interesting that's that it's not really talked about much as far as marijuana and hemp and really what the future is going to hold is, again, you know, hemp's, hemp's doesn't have really the THC component. Marijuana does. And the one thing that's interesting, if you look at it, there's over 110 different cannabinoids. And it, I think there's new ones getting discovered all the time, right? And so CBD has really been the low-hanging fruit. And so that's really getting a lot of press. So what's the future going to hold for CBN? Right, which is a degradation product of THC, I believe, or CBD, you know, CBG or CBC, and some of the other ones. So there's a whole lot of opportunity there. And the one thing that I think is interesting that I think is going to hold one of the keys, anyway, for which is going to dominate or or maybe have more of a market in the future between marijuana and hemp 
is what they've found so far through some real studies, Corey, is that there seems to be a synergistic effect between THC and CBD for pain. So if you have somebody who's taking it for pain, it turns out it seems like that if you have a preparation that is has THC and CBD, it's one plus one equals three, right? And I think the big question mark then is, is you going to have the same synergistic effect between THC and other cannabinoids like CBN, right? Or CBC or CBG. And so if that does turn out to be the case, then hemp may not be as, uh, you know, an important player in the future because of the importance of THC to, you know, the effectiveness of therapeutic window, if you will, of these different cannabinoids. So that's, I think, one of the things that not many people are talking about, I think is going to be a, a hold a big key of, of what becomes bigger part of the market, marijuana or hemp. Hmm. Okay. Wow. There's, there, I mean, there's so much we could talk about there. Um, I, I want to, what I'd like to do is, is maybe get a little bit more broad in talking about the investment banking relationships and, and, and tie this back to the conversation we just had there. But if, for example, if you've got a lot of early stage companies who are, who are exploring these kind of uh, avenues going down, getting more into the science of, uh, uh, and to the biochemistry of what's there and possible uses for this. Uh, if a company is working on that level, um, what do they need to do to really position themselves well to be capitalized, to go out there and raise money? That's, no, that's a, a great question. Uh, and it, that, again, is changing more. But, for example, uh, I mentioned to you earlier offline that Nandia Labs was one of our first clients after I left Cerna. And certainly we work with them because of our biotechnology and my work in genomics in the late 90s. But what's interesting is that you essentially had two populations of potential investors we go to. One was the cannabis, seasoned cannabis investors, and the other was, you know, the more biotech investors. And essentially, you would have, you know, the cannabis investors would look at the science and that would scare them off and say, you know, uh, that's that science is too arcane. And then you'd have the biotech investors and they say, well, we don't do marijuana. Sorry, you know, that's, we don't do drugs, right? They yeah. have that pre, pre, preconception. And that's changing, although it still, still needs to be considered. So if you're, you're, because a number of these VC, VC groups that do life science deals are still sitting on the sidelines. So I think they're taking a, definitely a harder look at, at cannabis. And so it has changed and I think it should be easier, but that's a great question is that you're going to probably run into some of the same issues that if you do have a company that really is doing some really hardcore biotechnology and using some really interesting, like, uh, you know, fermentation with yeast or CRISPR, which is a, you know, CRISPR is a new, uh, gene editing technology. And then I know there's some companies that are looking to apply that to breeding and, and cannabis. Uh, and you know, that's, that's one reason why I think that we have a leg up on most other investment bankers that we can essentially, uh, distill down and, and figure out the best way to position that company that really is going to get traction in the, uh, in the market because it's not an easy sell. Hmm. Yeah. It's, I can imagine it becomes, um, 
conveying that story and making sure that it's done properly and and finding the right investor there. I mean, that's uh, um, that can't be easy, especially in in a, in a space that's moving this 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 quick. Yeah. And, yeah. Well, the one thing to add to that too, Corey, is I think an important part of why these biotechnology is getting applied to the industry important because if you really look at it, most people believe that. 100% of the market's going to be a commodity at some point, whether it's, yeah. you know, hemp or marijuana. And I tend to disagree and say that, yeah, probably most of it, maybe 80%, 75%. But I think there's definitely going to be companies doing some interesting work that will be patentable, right? I mean, the one thing that's tough about uh, the industry is you have a lot of these natural compounds, which are hard to get composition of matter claims around. And, and so there's a number of different patents and I don't need to get into the weeds on this pun intended, but uh, composition of matter patent patenting is really where you get to patent the actual molecule and how it's made and what, what makes it up. And that's always been a real requirement for pharma companies, right? Uh, but there are other ways to go around and get patented technologies. And for example, you know, expressing uh, different cannabinoids in yeast or something. And if you can get patents issued on that area and have intellectual property, you know, that's really exciting, right? Because that's, that's a brave new world on, uh, you know, what patents would be relevant and what patents would not be relevant and, and, uh, you know, differentiating yourself because most companies out there, right, do not have intellectual property. They're going after markets. They're going after land grabs. They're trying to get big quickly. Because again, they don't have that kind of intellectual property foundation to fall back on that gives them some exclusivity, right? Right, right. Leaning on perhaps building a a recreational brand, you know, fast and quick to try to uh, you know get some market share, but not actually leaning on something that would be defensible uh, and truly defensible or defendable. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, defendable. And you know, just you bring up a good point too, because you have this whole thing with brands and trying to establish brands and, and, and to be frank, that's not our, you know, bread and butter. Uh, you know, again, we come from biotech and science, so building brands is not our expertise, but that's another whole, you know, conversation to have as far as, you know, which companies are going to succeed in the end and building a brand and how do you build a brand to last in this industry? Right. Because when you go to a dispensary here in Colorado, I mean, there really is very little brand loyalty. There is some, I mean, Wanda brands and Incredibles and there's some brands that are pretty well known here and they're known for quality, but there's some other things that are coming online that look pretty interesting too. Right? Mm -hmm. oh, one, uh, in interviewing uh, Tyler Stewart at Green Acre Capital, one thing that he said is he thinks on the recreational side, we don't, we still don't know what good cannabis is. We're still learning and there's going to be a lot of, more almost craft growers coming that are going to start to define the industry the same way craft brewery uh, brewing has done. Yeah. I thought that was interesting. Um, yeah. Keep, yes, that is interesting. You're right. Uh, keeping down the vein of, of investment banking relationships um, with what should, what, um, what incentives are there in for, for bankers? You know, what makes you tick as a banker and how can a company maximize that value with you? Yeah, it's a good question. I think, well, coming from operations originally and then getting into finance later, I think we're a little, 
unique. I think the main thing, and you know, as I mentioned, our mission statement really is to match really good capital with really good companies or other, you know, really good companies with other companies to do a strategic deal. And, you know, having been in the C-suite, et cetera, and done business development and doing good deals and actually, you know, trying to build real foundational operations for companies. Uh, that's kind of what I think makes us tick. And for example, a lot of work we've done in the past, Tori, being early on in the industry has been really working with companies to extricate them out of predatory capital situations where, you know, one ca- company we came across had uh, 40, uh, had a debt structure with 40% interest. Right. And that was crushing them. Yes. And that was crushing them. And we ended up not being able to help them. I don't even know if they're in business anymore. And I won't say who the company's name was, but I think the, and again, too, one thing that's interesting, we don't charge large fees. Uh, the reason being, uh, you know, we probably should, frankly, because I think we're uniquely qualified in this industry, whether it's Canada or U.S. or internationally from my background. But I think the whole idea is we want to, why the the fee structure really is based on being able to work with some really good companies, but also to work with some really good investors around the world where we can do a a transaction that really benefits both parties. And that really stems from my original experience doing business development before I got into banking. And so, yeah, go ahead. Well, what what I hear is that I think you take a lot of pride in in helping companies and, and building companies, and that comes from your corporate experience, and as yeah. well as your biotech experience. But when it comes to to the fees and to the incentives for for you or for other bankers to act, what what should those be? Is there a rule of thumb? Yeah, no, no, that's a good question. I mean, you know, typical. Well, so one of the big things here in the U.S. is obviously if you're registered or not. So if you're a registered representative with FINRA, you can charge a percentage of the the deal. If you're not, you're supposed to only charge a flat fee. Uh, so that's that's one big determinant. And you can certainly go on broker check to find out. It's a website to find out if somebody actually is still registered or if they're ever registered. And that's certainly a big determinant of the, the fee. But if you really break it down, Corey, it's pretty simple. It's three main three main aspects to it. You have a retainer component, which may or may not, you know, sometimes uh, advisors include that. You obviously have a success fee, which is based on the transaction. Then you also have warrants, really. And that's kind of the, there are some other compensational aspects you can weave in sometimes, but just on the uh general basis for a financing and and in general that applies to strategic advisory but there's a transactional fee or success fee and then the retainer and the warrants that there's a financing of some kind Uh, a lot of times when you're looking at debt versus financing the the debt uh success fee and the fees associated with a debt raise are going to be a little less or a little different Um, there are a number of advisors out there that don't work on retainer uh, we will not work with anybody without working on a retainer just because for us it's supply and demand. We have enough groups that come to us that are believe our, our fees are fair and that believe that we're unique in what we do. Uh, and also gets to the point of an opportunity cost, right? Yep. So we are really good at what we do and we allow our clients, freeze them up to actually 
keep the balls in the air and concentrate on operations, right? I mean, it's so hard in this industry. You're working so hard and so many hours to take advantage of the opportunity out there that, you know, you're hard, you know, you're having a hard time just keeping all the balls in the air and then you have to add your plate raising capital. And so that's one of the real big value adds for us, as we mentioned before, that we're like a, another man, member of the management team, right? Yeah. So with that being said, we're not going to come in and say, okay, it's all on the comments, all on the success fee, uh, because we add a lot of value in the process that we do. And that's one thing we haven't mentioned either. Having come from process development and been a project manager at, you know, Affymetrics in Silicon Valley, we're very process driven. We're very transparent about how we work with our clients and we have very unique ways that we structure our uh, engagements. Uh, we give our clients a lot of flexibility. Uh, we have very short termination uh, clauses, but which means if you think we're not any good, get rid of us. And that, that's never been put into place uh, early on. We usually go month to month after we uh, do our initial engagement because people want to extend uh, the work we do with them. Right. Um, okay. Now, for, for CEOs and management teams listening, do you have uh, can, do you have any numbers or percentages that they should keep their their eye on if they're going to do an equity financing? Is there you know we we used to say uh, seven and seven seven percent commission seven percent warrants, yep. but I mean that always changes. It's going to change with the size of the deal and so on. What yep. figures would you work with that you would say are a ballpark that are reasonable, or how could you help quantify that? Yeah, no, that's, uh, you know, we, we have certain percentages. And again, we're at our below market for the reasons that we also want to take into consideration the other party. And we want to have them as a long-term partner, like investor groups, right? That we can send them, continue to send them really good deals and they'll do them, right? Uh, but yeah, I mean, the seven and seven is, is, is kind of a ballpark that tends to be, uh, on the high end. But, you know, also, uh, you know, before I've seen, for example, public company financings, 10 and 10 would be 10,000 a month and 10% of the deal. Right. And so it really kind of depends, as you mentioned, too, the size of the deal. I mean, if you're talking a 40 or $50 million financing, it's not going to be 7%. Certainly be substantially less than that. And then obviously with M&A tends to track a little lower, too, because the, excuse me, the dollar amounts tend to be. Uh, a little bigger too for, you know, strategic advisory. So, I mean, it's, if you need a real ballpark, I would say, you know, anywhere from two to 7% is the range you're going to find, whether strategic advisory, financing, debt, equity, and across different sizes, right? Okay. As far as the success fee goes. Okay. Now, the retainers, I mean, it goes anywhere from, you know, a lot of groups, as I mentioned, will do it for no retainer per month. And other groups I've heard charging, you know, 50 to 100 grand retainers over six months um, or even like 25 grand per month, right? Uh, 40 grand per month. So uh, that seems to me a little exorbitant. But uh, well, I think that I think the biggest question actually, Corey, is most important is to really, again, look for a cultural fit and also really delve into, you know, how believable the the people are because we've heard quite a few advisors or bankers in the space some well-known but certainly not going to name any names where they take something on and they just don't they don't work very hard and they never get you know they never get heard from again yeah. um we don't I, we're not gonna <laughs> we've never had a hundred percent no go ahead 
Uh, I mean, I've, I've been through that. I'm working with some companies who, who are going through that. Uh, and, and it's very frustrating uh, when, yeah. you know, they, they say all the right things, you sign the engagement, and then it's crickets. So, yeah. No, yeah. And the one thing, too, that you will never, you know, as you know, too, from your professional background, Corey, the, the one thing that can get you and I in trouble being financial professionals is to guarantee anything, right? Uh, guaranteeing a return or anything just gets you into all kinds of trouble. And, you know, no investment banker, if they're smart, is going to ever say that, you know, we'll make sure we get the deal done because some deals are harder than others, right? One thing that we always make sure that we do for our clients is whether we're going to get a deal done or not, they know that we're working as hard as we can. And that's one thing that comes out of, I think, our operational background is that you know, one thing that's very unique that I haven't mentioned yet, and I actually haven't for a little while. So my last job in biotech before I got into investment banking was a company in Silicon Valley doing systems biology, and I was their head of business development. And they tried to do a Series B round of $20 million, and it was not successful, and they had to do an inside round of six, and I wasn't involved in the financing at all. They were driving it through the CEO. And they had to do an inside round of six, which is far less, right, than the $20 million they needed. So, unfortunately, I got laid off because of that, along with 30% of the company. And so, I've been laid off for a bad financing. I bet you you can't uh, name another investment banker who's been laid off for a bad financing. Hmm. And so, I understand the fact that if we go out there and we're not able to bring in money, and it's going to have some direct ramifications on the company or people working in the company or something to that effect. It's, you know, whereas most bankers figure, oh, well, we didn't get it done. We're going to just move on and we'll get another deal and we'll get it done and I'll get paid a nice paycheck. And that's all that matters. We have a much more humanistic approach to uh, an appreciation. Yeah, I appreciate, appreciate that perspective there. Hmm. No, yeah. this is... Um, uh, more of a general financing question as well as what financing methods or structures are you seeing right now that are getting the most interest or the most traction? Uh, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, you know, I, we don't do deals everywhere. We're trying to, as I mentioned, we're, we're doing a deal out of Canada that's an international deal and looking to list on the CSE. And we're certainly doing some deals down here, both uh, done some public and some private if you look at our website. Uh, over time, you know, originally it was a lot of uh, straight equity or convertible notes, quite a few of those. Uh, and then, you know, a couple of years ago, we saw quite a number of companies, especially touching the plan here in the U.S., doing sale leasebacks, where, you know, they own some of the real estate and they wanted more liquidity. So they, you know, essentially sell their real estate or some of their assets and essentially get capital for it with the option to, you know, buy it back at some later time. So those became pretty prevalent. We're seeing those still uh, pretty prevalent to this day. Uh, We're seeing certainly debt uh, come to play a little more. And I think the debt is interesting because we're talking some groups on working with them on debt because debt deals tend to get done quicker than equity. Uh, We're definitely seeing more equity plays come in down here in the U.S especially for, you know, operators, multi-state operators. Uh, But, uh, you know, things change over time. But I think what we're going to see in the near term is probably amalgamation 
of a lot of these different deals taking hold where you're going to end up having more debt deals, more equity, certainly more convertibles. And you're going to probably end up seeing also more creative structures uh, like option type of arrangements. Uh, I think that's the one thing I wanted to mention is that I think unique what we're doing is you see a lot of these companies doing M&A deals. And I did uh, over 20 non M&A deals when I did business develop more incremental transactions like co-developments, joint ventures, et cetera. And I think those are transactions that are definitely going to start getting done more because a lot of these companies are setting themselves up for failure when they go acquire a, a company to get access to a new geography. And it turns out that the company's not what they said they were. And then that, you know, turns out to add a lot of pain and operational pain to the company to where it maybe bring it down. Right. Yeah. As opposed to doing something more incremental where it's a option type arrangement, similar to maybe what uh, canopy and acreage did. Right. Where, you know, it involves an initial amount of money. And then if things really do turn south, the only thing on the line is that initial amount of money as opposed to, and it's easier to unwind than a full blown M and a deal that involves more money and certainly more risk. Right. I think that's going to start really changing. Yeah, you kind of you're giving yourself an option there, an optional out, uh, but then yeah, potential and, building the upside. Yeah, if I may add to that too, I mean, we I believe we're the first group to to do those type of deals because they're very they're prevalent in biotech and pharma, and did a few of those, or at least looked to do a number of those when I was in the industry, and we did a few of those when I was at Cerna. And the reason why we did those is back in 2014. There's a lot of groups out there that said one thing. And really, we're not what they said they were, right? So we did an option-based structure to mitigate that risk. So instead of jumping into a group and then being left held holding the bag later on when it turns out they were not what they said they were, it was it was certainly a risk uh, diversification strategy by doing an option structure. And I think you know companies would be prudent to to do more more transaction structures like that. Okay. I just, I'm looking at time here and want to, uh, to respect yours. When you have companies approach you, um, or let me rephrase that, what is the best way for, for companies looking to uh, retain you? How, how should they approach you? Uh, good question. Uh, they can just uh, go on our website. We have our emails there, Matt Dockery and I, um, Stacey Sanford's uh, one of the principals here, and Ron Camerzel, who is former head of the MED, is also part of our team. Uh, the MED is the Marijuana Enforcement Division here in Colorado. And they can just certainly send us over an email. We actually have had the last uh, couple of weeks inbound emails from a group out of India and one from Germany. And uh, certainly some groups uh, around the U.S. that reach out to us and get introduced. And we're always uh, glad to take some time to learn about new companies. I mean, you know, that's one thing, Corey, that's always interesting. You get people asking you about, well, do you know this person or this company? And frankly speaking, most of the time we don't because this industry is moving so quickly. Companies are coming online so often that, you know, there's just new opportunities all the time. Hmm. Okay. And as a, a final question, is there anything that you would like to share? Any points of perspective? Uh, any you know, final remarks that, uh, that you see that the audience would value from? Uh, well, not really. I think uh, I certainly appreciate your time. I certainly hopefully uh, appreciate people that have listened to this. Uh, you know, our, our whole goal is to uh, 
when we're up in front of uh, people on a panel or certainly on a podcast, we want to make sure that we're probably, we're trying to provide, you know, valuable insights and valuable information because frankly, there's a lot of misinformation out there in this industry uh, for a number of various reasons, right? And our goal is, that's one of our main goals too, is to be an arbiter of unbiased, objective information. Because again, that kind of comes from my experience working in operations, right? Our our thought is that when I worked in operations, I was hoping to get very good information to make the best decision, right? And it's really hard to make the best strategic decision if you don't have good, you know, unbiased, objective information. And so that's one of the goals, too, that we like to do is provide real information that's not trumped up or colored in some manner or form so our clients or potential clients alike can make, you know, smart decisions that, you know, are going to lead to success instead of failure, right? And if I was to drill in on that quickly, where, if I was looking online, where, where do you go online to get your information as just one source? I mean, it's, uh, I mean, it's such a, a crapshoot of what's out there, but where do you look for your information? Well, Marijuana Business Daily is always a good place to go with their emails, right? And there's a number of other sources we have. Some of the best information we get, though, is from magazines uh, that we we read or try to stay up with. It's hard to do, but you know, where Marijuana Business Daily has a great magazine, Marijuana Ventures, Sun Grower. There's a lot of new magazines coming out on technology, um, and so we, you know, certainly like to read The Economist and other things uh, to look at the world view, but. Yeah, that's what we found is there's always really good, interesting articles in a lot of these magazines on informing people on, you know, how to grow or hoops houses, hoop houses versus greenhouses, you know, different cultivars or strains versus others, where things are going. And yeah, it's just, uh, there's just so much information to, to read and to understand, right? That's just moving so quickly that uh, that's kind of, you know, you can never spend enough time doing it, right? Oh, and yeah, it's hard to do, but you know, yeah. right. You you try to do the same thing. It's pick out sources you can you can trust, right? And uh, and also we uh, we do get some stuff like there's a thing I'm looking at right now. It's a really interesting uh, amalgamation about hemp from the U.S. government. Uh, there's also a couple of things that came out from the DEA a couple of years ago when they uh, released their perspectives on trying to reschedule. And that was, I believe, August 2016. They had some really good papers that they put out supporting their lack of wanting to reschedule uh, mm-hmm. cannabis. And so, you know, there's all kinds of different uh, things out there. All that stuff adds in. Okay. Well, and it's uh, it's people like yourself taking the time to share your views here on the podcast and uh, and on the panels that you sit on. So, David, thank you very much for taking the time. I, I very much appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you, Corey. And uh, have a nice weekend. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.